For Pacifica Radio, July 6th, 2023, I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti-War Radio. All right, y'all, welcome to the show. It is Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm the editorial director of Antiwar.com. And I'm the author of Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. You can find my full interview archive, almost 6,000 of them now, going back 20 years, at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow and the rest of the video sites and stuff, too. And you can follow me on Twitter, at scotthortonshow. All right, introducing our guest, it's the great Matt Taibbi from Racket.News and author of Hate, Inc. about the media as well. Welcome back to the show. How you doing, Matt? Thanks for having me on, Scott. Very happy to have you here, and big congratulations to you. This is what I think journalism is for, and especially your style of journalism, too. Man, did you really get her done this time? And I know it's not the final say, but it's a big deal, so tell us about the case of Missouri versus Biden and Judge Terry Doty. Yeah, I mean... I'm very reluctant to say that this is a journalism-inspired thing, but in parallel to the Twitter file story that uh, I worked on beginning at the end of the last year with Barry Weiss and Michael Schellenberger and some other folks, there was a lawsuit that was developing that was uh, instigated by a pair of attorneys general in Louisiana and Missouri, where they basically sued a whole range of actors in the federal government accusing them of being involved in a, what they call a censorship enterprise. And, um, the, a judge, the judge in the case yesterday, Terry Dowdy, federal judge in Western district of Louisiana handed down an order basically enjoining nearly all of the uh, defendants, but, but a huge range of actors from, Agencies like the Global Engagement Center, DHS, the FBI, CISA, all kinds of people from doing all the stuff basically that you know we described in the Twitter files, reaching out to these companies, sending them content moderation requests, and holding over the threat of regulation and all kinds of other stuff. So it, it feels like basically a judge is putting a halt to all this stuff that uh, people said wasn't even happening over the summer. So it, it, it was, uh, it was quite a ruling. It felt like a lot of validation for a lot of us. Yeah. Good. Well, look, I know you're very modest and don't like taking credit, but you deserve to gloat because of course you spearheaded this effort. And as you just mentioned, uh, and as you mentioned in your writing, of course, there's this whole list of other journalists who helped you on this, but the, Twitter files. Well, go ahead and tell people who didn't hear about it. Can you kind of paint a little mosaic? I like the way you write about it in your recent piece at racket.news, Matt. You talk about how, well, at first we weren't exactly sure what we're looking at. The more and more files are giving us, it's kind of painting this picture of, wow, all these agencies, what exactly are they doing? And it begins to really come clear to you. So make it clear to us what it is we're talking about. Sure. So uh, at the end of November and early December of last year, I got invited to go to Twitter and look through the files of the old company. And uh, apart from the first story, which was kind of jointly agreed upon, we, we decided to look at the 
episode involving the Hunter Biden expose and the suppression of it by Twitter, you know, the one that the New York Post wrote. After that, it was just a whole bunch of us looking at sort of a gigantic pile of emails and Slack chats and other stuff. And we had to make sense of what we were looking at. And in the course of doing that, we ended up with this basic plot where we thought what we were, what we were seeing was Twitter did not want to be involved in a mass censorship exercise, but they were dealing with pressure from the Senate Intelligence Committee and some other folks that suggested that they would be regulated if they didn't go along. And before long, they instituted this very sophisticated system by which they were getting requests to take action on thousands of accounts by groups all across the government. I mean, it would it went through the FBI and the DHS for the most part, but it was it was like a huge range of agencies that were sending these spreadsheets full of requests. And uh, as you say, a lot of us were, were we were looking at this and thinking, we can't report this because nobody's going to believe it. It's it's too weird. But as it turned out, you know, the people who were investigating this lawsuit basically found the same thing and they came to their conclusions through a completely different means. And so that that felt pretty good. I mean, I, I think what we were looking at was a very sophisticated kind of nascent cross-government censorship scheme that you know, if nobody had intervened would have become kind of like a ministry of truth type of thing. Mm-hmm. What do you mean that they came about all their information through a completely different means? So the the investigators in Missouri v. Biden were looking at different documents. They had a series of um, uh, plaintiffs. Several of them were doctors who got in, who were um, suppressed because they had different opinions about vaccine mandates or the efficacy of the vaccines. There was one person from the Gateway Pundit. But most of what uh, they got, they either got through subpoenas of communications, let's just say, like from White House officials to the companies um, or from the Census Bureau or from the Global Engagement Center, or they came from depositions and interviews of various characters who were involved in the case. So while we were mostly, we were pretty limited to getting the primary information from emails at Twitter, they were getting it through subpoenas and interviews with principals. And, you know, they, they had people explaining to them what was going on in a way that we didn't have the advantage of that at first. I see. Well, they must have been guided by what they were reading mm-hmm. in, in your journalism and the rest, too. Oh, uh, I don't beyond know. Yeah, that maybe. Discovery. Mm-hmm. yeah, maybe that's possible. But but I think. Clearly, you know, the, the, the theory of their case, which you can see the way it evolved in, in the various complaints, you know, they had a number of versions of their original lawsuit. I think the last amended complaint was from May of this year. But you can see they came around basically to this idea that uh, the government was had built up these companies by giving them these huge direct or indirect subsidies in the form of like Section 230 protections or failure to prosecute them for antitrust violations and basically said, you know, hey, if you don't do this stuff, we're going to take that, the, those subsidies away. And uh, next thing you know, they're, you know, they're taking direction on all kinds of topics. And 
that's the thing that's kind of amazing about this is that it wasn't limited to COVID or election misinformation. It's like this whole bizarre range of stuff that they got their fingers in, which I think even now the public doesn't hasn't grasped how vast an enterprise it was. Yeah. Um, so, in fact, just to read from your recent piece here at uh, Racket.News, you're essentially paraphrasing one of the plaintiffs here. And he just lists a few topics here from gender ideology to abortion to monetary policy to the war in Ukraine and beyond. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you talk about monetary policy you know, the, the justification for some of the thinking behind content moderation on financial topics is we want to prevent panics. We want to we want to prevent a situation where people run for the exits because they're scared about news that might be coming out of the financial sector. Well, you know, that's a recipe for disaster. If they're going to be shielded from bad news that might lead them to disinvest, what kind of a market do you have in that in that case? And then the case of the Ukraine thing, you know, one of the things that we found, the Ukrainian Secret Services sent the American government a list of figures that they felt needed to be taken off the Internet. And one of them was Aaron Mate. They just sent the FBI a list and the FBI forwarded this to Twitter. Now, Twitter didn't take action, but that tells you a lot about how the FBI perceives its role in all of this. And that is just amazing. And I'm really glad you brought that up because I wasn't able to arrange an interview with him on that crucial topic. But I wanted to make sure somebody touched that base on here at some point. The FBI, you say, Matt Taibbi, they took that request from the government in Kiev and they passed it on to Twitter. This is a list of people we want kicked off of Twitter, including this Canadian journalist. Yeah, the first time we we saw those communications, I actually thought we misread them at first. I thought at first the FBI was saying to Twitter, um, hey, you know, they wanted this, but feel free to not do it or, or something along those lines. But they weren't. They were sending it in earnest. They were like, we're, we're forwarding these requests. And then, you know, the, the list that they gave them was a, huge long spreadsheet of actors which included by the way some some pretty anodyne russian voices just odd stuff and i think what what you see with all these these uh censorship schemes is that once they get rolling they just get in this groove where they want to add more and more names and Mm -hmm. that's not a good thing yeah. All right. So let's talk about, first of all, the workaround, as you've already sort of described it here, and what the judge said about the workaround here. Because as I gather from all your great reporting, that what we have, as you said, they had these carrots and sticks. Gee, it'd be a shame if we had to keep hauling you up before Congress and just even threatening your stock price there. It'd be a shame if we had to open antitrust investigations into your business or, you know, hey... I'm sure you really enjoy this section, this and that protection that you're getting now, as they do. And then they have all these, you know, all the evil Mr. Burnses in the government rubbing their hands together and saying, oh, here's what we'll do. We'll just, you know, have cut out companies 
do all this work for us. We'll get Stanford University somehow to take the lead and and all of these groups. And I think you guys did this thing of like the dirty 50 of these things. I mean, There's an endless list of these NGOs and, and university groups and whatever. But then the idea is the government can get away with violating the Bill of Rights because it's not them doing it. It's these private organizations. And as you even describe them, they're sending requests and so even if they're threatening twitter that that's a nice headquarters you have there be ashamed if it burnt down kind of thing at the same time they're they're still just asking nicely and so is that the same thing as violating congress shall make no law and so then did i characterize that sort of right and then what does the judge say about that matt taibbi well, he's pretty negative about it. I mean, he, he goes through a long list of citations of cases talking about the, the government is basically barred from what they call significant encouragement. Like, there's one case, the Lee versus the Macon County Board of Education. I'll just read one of the lines from it. It's axiomatic that a state may not induce, encourage, or promote private persons to accomplish what it is constitutionally forbidden to accomplish. So in other words, we can't get somebody else to do it just because we can't do it. It's like, it's the same argument, oddly enough, that, you know, came up in the Alan Dershowitz uh, reversal of fortune case. Like, you know, you can't get private investigators to break into a house to do a search just because you can't get a search warrant. Like, it doesn't work that way. And the, the, the judge looked at this entire scheme and basically concluded clearly this is this is not innocent communication this is an organized um scheme where you know you have, for instance you have the fbi agent talking about how we succeed with 50 percent of our requests and that sort of thing you, you, the use of cutouts and the and the fact that they had disclaimers like oh you, at your sole discretion, you may dis- uh, decide that this is a violation of your terms of service. Those, that's not good enough. I mean, I think that was one of the things that we found with the Twitter files. Is we published this stuff. We didn't even have to say it was, it was a violation of the First Amendment. Ordinary people looked at it and they said, we, we don't like that. We think that sucks. And now here's the, here's the judge saying, well, you think that for a reason because it's illegal. And, uh, there's obviously going to be a fight about it, but I, I agree with him. So Sorry, hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for Tennessee Hot Sauce Company. Man, this stuff is so good. They get all different flavors. Garlic habanero, honey habanero, pineapple habanero, poblano jalapeno, and the blood orange ghost. They're all so good, I swear. And for a limited time, Tennessee Hot Sauce Company is featuring official Scott Horton Hotter Than the Sun thermonuclear hot sauce. It's full of Carolina Reapers, Scorpion Peppers, Dr. Pepper, Hydrogen Isotopes, and all kinds of things that'll burn your tongue clean off. Seriously, it's really good. Get yourself a hot sauce subscription. Spend $40 or more and use promo code SCOTT to get a free bottle of Hotter Than The Sun hot sauce. That's tnhotsauceco.com. Hey, y'all gotta check out these awesome busts of our hero, the great Ron Paul. They're made by the renowned sculptor Rick Casali. They're 13 inches tall, hand-painted bronze resin based on Casale's brilliant original. Y'all may have seen mine in the background on my bookshelf in some recent interviews. The thing is unbelievable. 
Check out this incredible piece of art at rickasali.com slash ronpaul, and you'll see what I mean. Use promo code Horton, and you'll save 25 bucks, and this show will get a little kickback, too. That's rickasali.com slash ronpaul. Casali is C-A-S-A-L-I. rickasali.com slash ronpaul. And there's free shipping, too. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole reason for having a Bill of Rights is because they're going to get carried away and they got to come up against a brick wall somewhere. And the best invention we got so far is black robe judges who can't be fired for overruling these people. That's basically it. You know, our last stand. Right. And and here's another thing that, that drives me crazy about this, which is you see the mainstream media reaction to, to this ruling, you saw the reaction to the Twitter files reporting and to this lawsuit. All throughout, they've been behaving as though this reporting or the lawsuit or whatever, that we're the radicals who are, you know, creating some kind of new wild standard of, you know, permissibility and, and impring, you know, impinging upon normal government behavior. No. What they're doing is completely radical, and and I would say ordinary American sort of ACLU liberals even ten years ago would have would have thought this sort of vast system of organized preemptive uh, interference in the speech landscape they would have considered that absolutely insane not that long ago, and now you know it's just normal. I mean, again, you go back to a case like Brandenburg v. Ohio or something like that, mm-hmm. where they set the standard for, you know, when do we stop incitement? They set that bar incredibly high, and here it's so low. Like they they, they were getting involved with everything for no reason at all. Mm-hmm. So, and and by the way, it reminded me in reading your piece where you point that out. It reminded me of all the accusations against Edward Snowden, who back 10 years ago, revealed uh, to Greenwald at all about the NSA spying on us all. And for all their vilification of him, the federal courts ruled that all this stuff is unconstitutional. Wherever anybody could find standing to sue, they won. And then Congress changed the law. I mean, not very well, but still is better than nothing. And it was absolutely validation of the work that he was doing that what they were doing was wrong, and he was right when he said that. And obviously it was clear that that was his motivation for leaking the truth about it to us all. Well, And again, look at the pattern, right? First they denied that it was going on at all. Then they said, okay, we are doing it, but we're only passively collecting it, and it's very heavily regulated, and we don't make any mistakes, and we don't listen to people when, when, you know, when we don't have really, really good reason then there are inspector general's reports talking about sort of massive violations of you know the 702 procedures and um they they really are using uh this passive collection as an intelligence gathering tool and they're using it in the wrong way and you know once when it gets in front of judges judges strike it down the same way they struck down things like the watch list and all this other misbehavior, the, the pattern is the same every time. They go in and they do something without asking permission. They deny it. Then when they get caught, it goes to the courts and, and hopefully, you know, the courts strike it down. But um, but I think this is the same kind of thing. You know, I think you're, you're, it's very apt that you mentioned that because this is similar. 
Yeah, so now, if you could please talk more about the true content where I'm interested, I guess, especially in the examples of vaccine injuries and these other things where they explicitly say in their messages, I guess the government messages or the NGO messages to Twitter that, look, this stuff is true, but we do not like the anticipated effect that it will have in the public conversation. That's why we want you to delete it. And But factually true claims you know, specific claims that people are making that they admit are true. How much of that is going on in there? Uh, how much? I mean, the, enough that they had to give an, a name for it um, in a department. I mean, they had a subcommittee at the Department of Homeland Security called the MDM subcommittee, which is misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. Uh-huh. Malinformation is just true information that is narratively inconvenient or produces an, a, a, an outcome that they think is adverse. So, for instance, in this case, um, there, were, there were emails that were produced where a White House official was expressing you know, frustration to Facebook that they weren't doing enough to remove bad information from search procedures. And Facebook responds by saying, don't worry. We're already reducing the virality of, quote, often true content that might produce vaccine hesitancy. And this shows a couple of things. Number one, it shows that Facebook views the government as something that has to re- report to, right? Like the, the whole tenor of these communications is sort of master canine, right? Like the, the, the platforms are constantly sort of reporting on what they're doing and asking if that's enough. But the second thing is they're saying, yeah, we'll take down even the true stuff, even the stuff that doesn't violate our policies. We'll de-amplify it if it makes you happy because they're trying to produce a certain narrative outcome. And this is constant, uh, a thing that's like a through line in, in the whole narrative about d- digital censorship, which is that they're looking at narrative as opposed to fact. Fact, fact is increasingly irrelevant to these folks, what they're interested in is the political reaction of the readers. And that's what's dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, I just saw a tweet this morning from a guy quoting the New York Times. And they say outright here that um, the judge who was appointed by Trump expressed little skepticism about debunked claims from vaccine skeptics. In one previous case, Judge Doty accepted as fact the claim that, quote, COVID-19 vaccines do not prevent transmission of the disease, which, of course, is completely true. Which is completely true. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, And this is not an opinion column by the editorial board. This is in their news story talking about what a bad guy this judge is and how he doesn't know what he's talking about when he's making these decisions, Matt. I know, I know. And again, there's two things about that that are crazy. Number one, they, they're making a mistake and not uh, realizing that they themselves are promoting disinformation when they do it. But the, the second thing is you know, the, the judge is making a ruling that, that basically says, hey, traditionally in America, we don't do this because our whole approach to controversy is um a that people have a right to listen to uh, anything 
Um, it's not just about the speaker who has the rights, but it's the listener who has the right to hear all sides. Uh, but B, we don't we don't combat incorrect speech with suppression. We combat it with better speech. And why do we do that? Well, one of the reasons we do that is because the truth is a moving target. It's difficult to find. In COVID, it was the ultimate example. Like the truth changed every couple of weeks. And you can't, you know, preempt speech there, um, even though the authorities did constantly. Uh, so it's, it's a kind of madness, you know, and, and I, I don't think they see it, which is unfortunate. Yeah. All right. Sansa War Radio talking with Matt Taibbi here. And, you know, I don't want to waste your time on this, but it is interesting and important in a way. It keeps coming up and we saved it till the end anyway. Talk a little bit about this piece about if you're not with us, you're MAGA. Because I know you're definitely a victim of this. And you've stated that you're no longer a Democrat. You're now an independent. But you've also said on this show before that you have not moved right in your own mind in any way. Just that you've been made to feel unwelcome among certain parts of the left where you used to have friends, I guess. But can you talk a little bit about the idea that if you're not with, I guess, the Biden movement such as it is or this center left liberal Democrats that you automatically are a deplorable? So I was writing that piece in um, in response to a profile on the Atlantic of Robert Kennedy Jr., that was called the first MAGA Democrat. And the entire thrust of the article basically is that Kennedy is not a Democrat. Um, he's not even really a politician. Uh, he's, he's really an avatar for the Trump movement. Uh, they sort of hinted that he had been uh, impelled to run for president because Steve Bannon suggested that he do it. But this has been a, a constant rhetorical technique ever since Trump got elected. And Scott, I mean, I think you, you, you've probably been victim of this too, right? If you disagreed with the Russiagate narrative, you were a Trump supporter. If, um, of course. You know, if, if you weren't sure that the, the origin of the virus was zoonotic, um, you, you were a Trump supporter. Uh, if you, you know, if you thought people um, should have the right to exchange um, information about uh, treatments other than the vaccine, you were a Trump supporter. Even if you were pro-vaccine, I mean, it's it's that kind of stuff. They've they've just created this binary atmosphere, and I I, I always focus on this because it's something that Orwell predicted which is that, you know, as societies become more totalitarian, what they do is they always try to eliminate the distinctions and the shades of gray and, for, and force everybody to do basically, you know, rhetorical Texas Hold'em. We're all betting with all our chips in the middle of the table. It's either left or right that wins. It's either Trump or, you know, the forces of good that win. And it's just not accurate, right? Like, I, I feel like you're, you're not a Trump, you know, you're not, you're not a Trumpist, like, necessarily, or... Never um, been, of course not. Yeah, and I, I know I'm not, but, you know, well, like, when the Twitter files started, even the Washington Post, they did a story calling me, like, conservative journalist Matt Taibbi. You know, where, where does that come from? It It's just a labeling exercise, and 
I think that this is going to result in people just getting, they've now done this to enough categories of people that it's going to become true. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like they've labeled the greens MAGA. They've labeled Bernie supporters MAGA. Yeah. I mean, people do- aren't going to necessarily move right, but they're certainly going to absolutely hate the liberal damn Democrats. Right, right. And what kind of a political strategy is that? I mean, even even just from a practical standpoint, remember when Hillary Clinton first came out with that deplorable statement, the immediate first blush response of all the pundits was to go back to the old school way of thinking about this, which was, wow, that's kind of an unforced error. Like you don't, you know, a politician who goes out and and throws away, you know, a sixth of the electorate for no good reason um, is making a mistake. But they do that over and over again. They, they they don't just disagree with voters. They insult them. They berate them. They call them traitors. They call them idiots, uh, insurrectionists. Like they use the harshest conceivable language. Yeah. And it's just, it's so infuriating. Well, and in the most unbelievable ways, I mean, one of the clues to Russiagate being a big fake hoax was that you had a bunch of great journalists on the left, like yourself and Glenn Greenwald and Michael Tracy and... Robert Perry and Ray McGovern and, of course, Aaron Maté and, you know, all these left-wing journalists who are just saying, look, by definition, we're not Trump guys. I know you had written a book, Insane Clown President, about this guy. And, yeah, I mean, Ray McGovern says he's been the worst president America's ever had, worse than Nixon, worse than anyone. And he still debunked Russiagate all day, every day for three and a half years. He couldn't help it. It wasn't true. And uh, and so the idea that he had moved to the right or somehow was a Donald Trump guy just because he was debunking the CIA and FBI's lies about him was completely ridiculous. Doesn't follow at all. No. And and the only reason they do it is because it's a, you know, it's a social pressure technique. You, you, you do not want to be cast out of the, you know, the garden of the accepted or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. And and. I think a lot of younger younger journalists, I know, I know this happened. They looked at what um, you know the kind of treatment that, especially Glenn got. Glenn got this worse than me. Like you know, they had feature stories in the New Yorker. Remember the one? Yeah, the bane of their resistance that kind of portrayed him as nuts because he he wouldn't go along with this and suggested that it, it was because he was racist and hated women and uh, <laughs> you know. Who wants to go through that? Like, not everybody, especially if you're starting your career, you don't want to deal with that stuff. Yeah. And it works, but it comes at a huge cost, which is, you know, I think you lose the public if they see that you're tailoring the way you report things because you're, <laughs> you want to keep your job, you want to keep your friends. Like, that's, that's not a place you want to be. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm so sorry that we're out of time, but I really appreciate your time again on the show, Matt. Been great. Thanks so much, Scott. Appreciate it. Have a good one. Aren't you guys? That's the great Matt Taibbi. He's at racket.news, and that's it for anti-war radio for today. I'm Scott Horton. Find the full archive at scotthorton.org, and I'm here every Thursday from 2.30 to 3 on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. See you next week.